0: Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23. Those of you that have been gone for a while now have come back and wonder, where did Revelation go? It has gone. And we will probably, I'm not sure what we'll do in the fall when I get back on vacation, but we're probably, I'm considering Daniel... And then interspersed into Daniel, the Sermon on the Mount, and then possibly the Book of Acts. So we'll see where we're heading as I have some time to kind of take the foot off the accelerator a little bit and see what I think the Lord would have us do in the fall and in the upcoming year, okay? When I do get back, I will have a study week in August. If you would pray for that study week, that the Lord would make it fruitful and And beneficial not only to me but also to what he would have us hear from his word the upcoming year now ah the leisurely days of summer right don't you just love the summer the leisurely days of summer you love the summer unless you have a day like eddie melendez did a couple days ago eddie melendez was is 21 and he was enjoying a beautiful sunny day and they're always a little more beautiful in florida the floridians tell us and this was in tampa He's enjoying the day, and he's minding his own business. He's probably listening and singing to the radio. He's got his windows down, and the warm air is rushing through the car. And he's just finished with work, so he's driving home. He's relaxed. He's at ease. He's enjoying his summer. That was until this old truck swerved in front of him. And as the truck swerved in front of him, he initially had to swerve away from the truck and then eventually found himself careening off the side of the road. Now, it gets worse because at that point he tried to put his brakes, foot to the brakes, nothing happened. He pulled up on the emergency brake of this small compact Honda, nothing happened. So he found himself careening off the road towards the canal. And then he found himself splashing into the canal on the side of the road. Now, that's no problem that this is Ohio, but this is Florida, and we know what creeps around in canals, and in particularly this particular canal, because this canal was called Alligator Alley. This was a canal infested with alligators, and it gets even worse as he's careening into the canal that's alligator infested, this stretch of highway of alligator infested water he is messing when he was messing with his uh, brakes his glasses tumbled off his face and without his glasses without his specs he is legally blind how would you like having one of these days now there is an interpretation as a Calvinist for all that Eddie went through (laughs) that day when he finally dragged himself out of the canal And there was nothing fixed to something it shouldn't be. There is a very popular interpretation as a Calvinist. Just be glad it's over is the interpretation, right? Now, as we head on our vacation this next couple of weeks, my prayer for you to pray for us is that we don't have anything like Eddie Melendez had. In fact, as I talked uh, with the Bradshaws recently, that we do not have an RV, RV vacation like they've had recently, that we would have a refreshing, relaxing, and rejuvenating time. That's all I'm asking. As a Calvinist, I just want to have that kind of a vacation. So please pray for that. But as we do head out and as we are leaving, what, would, what do I want you to know as we will be gone in these next couple of weeks? we wrapped up Revelation. I'm thinking about, all right, I'm going to be gone for a while. What do I want everybody here to know? What do I want you to know for these next couple of weeks since I won't be preaching to you? I won't be talking to you in the hallways. I won't meet with you during the week and there won't be public and private conversations with you about the things of God. What do I want you to know while we're gone? What do I pray for for you and for my family and for myself? What is it? Please stand for the hearing of God's word because it's found in this passage. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Let's do pray and ask the reality of this passage in our time this morning. Oh Lord, we do ask you to give what this passage talks about. And we ask you to push to the sidelines the distractions the conflicting feelings the uncertainties of many situations that we're all facing and we ask Lord even in spite of our own sin would you graciously draw near to us Would you give us spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, even as we hear about him? Oh, Lord, grant this in Jesus name. Amen. Now, Jim Smith went to church on Sunday morning. And as Jim Smith went to church on Sunday morning, he heard the pianist. And as he was listening to the pianist, he heard the pianist miss a note in the prelude. And he winced. He saw in the service a teenager talking to somebody when everyone was supposed to be praying. He felt when the time of the offering came around that the usher was watching him to see what he put in the offering tray. And it made him irate, extremely angry that he was being watched. He caught the preacher making a slip of the tongue. He actually, can you believe this? he actually heard the preacher make up words. (laughs) And by the end of the sermon, he was at count five. Five words this person made up. He watched everyone take communion, and he thought, do they do this every week? How frostbitingly formal. (laughs) He slipped out through the side door during the closing hymn. He didn't take the initiative to engage in anyone, to get to know them. And as he went out the side door, he thought, never again. Never again will I go to a place that's so full of cold clods and hypocrites. Right? Well, Ron Jones went to church on Sunday morning, and he heard the pianist play, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And when he heard that, he was moved by the majesty of the music and of the words and the radiance of God that shone all over the hymn. He heard a young girl, a teenager, in the service take a moment to speak to a dear friend that was visiting for the first time. And he even overheard the kind, gracious, gracious, Friendly, soothing words that this friend was speaking to the other friend of encouragement and help to a downcast soul. He was glad to see that his church was taking their quarterly benevolence offering. They decided every quarter to take a benevolence offering for those who are in need. And he's even was surprised that as the year went on and he looked through the past year, he could see that his heart had even expanded through the practice of a quarterly giving to those who are in need. He was shocked at how his heart had opened. He was shocked at how his heart was expanding and actually delighting in giving to those who are in need. Yeah, and when the word was preached, it was as if he was the only one in the room. It was as if God was speaking to him. It was as if God was meeting with him. It was almost as if he had heard it before somewhere in the past that God was shining on the page to him. When it got time to communion, he couldn't stand it anymore. His heart was just overwhelming with delight and praise and adoration and joy and happiness. That he has a Savior. His Savior. And then the strangest thing too is that When he came up with all the people in the church, they were no longer just people to him. They were people that were purchased by his Savior. And he started having an incredible love for them. An unseen unity began to unite his soul to them. And he loved them like brothers and sisters. As he walked to his car, after spending some time taking the initiative after the service to talk to people, to get to know people, the hard work of relationships and community, he walked to his car and he said to himself, How can someone come into this place and not feel God? These two men went to the same church on the same Sunday morning. what do I want you to know while I'm gone I want you to know that there's hope for change I want you to know I want you to know the answer to this question how do you change how do you change when you're spiritually blind how do you change when you're spiritually cold how do you change when you sense the spiritual hardness in your own soul and the blindness In your own eyes. How do you change when you know you've been in a long pattern of talking to your children with a low-grade irritation? How do you change, mom, dad? How do you change when you know you've been in a pattern of grumbling and complaining and critical of everyone around you? The church you go to, the leadership in the church... The direction of the church, the budget of the church, the women of the church, the men of the church, the youth ministry of the church, the everything of the church. How do you change the painful fears and crippling anxieties that grip you? Maybe it's Monday morning or maybe it's when you put your head down at night. There's some time that usually that gets all of us, that you're alone. And fear creeps in, and anxiety crushes you. Maybe you don't sleep. Maybe you take a sleeping pill. Maybe you'll watch TV. Maybe you go get something to eat. But you know what I mean. How do you change into a grace-driven worshiper and witness? How do you change into a powerful instrument in God's hands? How do you change into a team player who walks with other people in truth and in love and humility and a camaraderie and a partnership in the gospel and a deep and committed commitment to changing lives and community? How do you change into this kind of stuff? Well, the answer in our passage is very, very clear. It's harder to get, but it's very, very clear. What's the answer? Did you find it? In Ephesians 1, 15, look at it, 15 through 23. What's the answer? How do you change? What's the hope for real change for you and for me in this passage? Here's the answer. You change by seeing, by receiving spiritual eyes. Change comes about by receiving spiritual eyes. So the most fundamental issue of change is not a principle of doing but the fundamental issue of changing is actually seen with different eyes. So we're kind of back to where we started from right at the beginning. Remember we talked about probably the most essential or most asked question today in the church. I'm not talking about outside the church. It's even outside the church, I think, because if you just go to Barnes & Noble or any bookstore, you'll see all the, the ways in which we're trying to fix ourselves. And help ourselves get in a certain direction or change in a certain light. But how do we change? How do people change? And the scripture answers that the fundamental crux, the seesaw, the pivot point by which you change or you don't change is your ability to see something. That's what it all turns on. It turns on receiving spiritual eyes. Okay, so what we're going to do in this passage is we're going to look at two meanings of how or what it means to receive spiritual eyes. What does that mean? There's two of them here. And then throughout that will be sprinkled with implications and applications that will arise from that. So the question is, or the, the question is, how do you change? How do you really change? The answer is by receiving spiritual eyes. Well, what does that mean? Let's look at it. The first point is this. Receiving spiritual eyes means spiritual eyes are given, not taken. Look at verses 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Do not blow by that word. Do not run past that word. Let that word grip you. And the word is give. That God may give you spiritual wisdom, spiritual revelation in the knowledge of him. That's an incredible word. The givenness of giving. That God is giving to you. So it's a it's a God breaking in thing. It's God working something in. It's God actually performing and acting and moving and shaping and creating and working something to be. Friends, that is tremendous. God gives is what the passage is saying. God gives spiritual eyes, is what the passage is saying. And so the implication is very, very big. If God doesn't give you spiritual eyes, you don't get them. Mm. I knew he was a Calvinist. If God doesn't give you spiritual eyes, you don't get them. That means God must do it. And what this passage slams right into is the most sacred belief in America today the sacredness of choice. Why? Because I choose what I want. And I choose who I want. And I choose what I want. And I choose when I want. And I choose where I want. And I choose how I want. I choose why I want. And I choose if I want. I choose what I want. And my freedom, my ability to choose, my what I want is the defining reality of what it means to be a human. And this passage is slamming right into that sacred belief in America today. That choice and freedom and what I want defines me, defines humanity, authenticates what it means to be a human being. I choose right or wrong. I choose belief or unbelief. I choose the direction or this direction. I choose green socks or blue socks. I choose. That's the sacred belief in America today. And this passage slams right into it. There's a man and his name is Ernest M. Dickerman. And he died at age 87. He was considered the granddad of the eastern wilderness by the Sierra Club. The obituary that was printed up on him went like this. It says he was 87. He was found under a cherry tree behind his cabin, having shot himself, police said. In a note to his family, Mr. Dickerman said he took his own life as he had long planned to do after the infirmities of age left him unable, quote, to master my own fate in the wilds of this wild country, end quote. I'm going to say something right now that you probably thought you would never hear in church, ever. The Bible agrees with pagan religion. Yes, Mrs. Ellis, I see that look on your face. The Bible agrees with pagan religion. Because pagan religion says that anything, anything, everything sun, moon, stars, Brazos River, Lake Waco, ancestors, animals, adoration of others, approval of others, karma, cars, food. Toys, success, brilliance, brawn, beauty can all be worshipped, can all be a God to us. And whatever we worship is our master. And therefore, we're not all as free as we thought we were. And that's why Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Now, he was not saying, don't have a master. And he was not saying, get rid of that master and get this master. All Jesus was saying was a simple Statement of the human condition. You will serve somebody. So no one is as free as they think. Okay? And this passage is saying that there's only one master who is good. And only one master who gives spiritual eyes to see that which is most beautiful and most attractive and most lovely and most glorious. Okay? In fact, let's look at that because I want us to make sure we get that. Look at the Master. It's interesting. A lot of the, uh, the early heresies that arose, one of them was struggling with who Jesus is and his sonship. And in struggling with his sonship, you know, is Jesus God's son? Well, does that mean that, that he's not God being God's son? What does that mean? And you can see how the early church, and even today, struggle with this whole issue of what's called Christology. What, who is Jesus? And what's interesting, look at, and what they stumbled over was this passage. Look at the passage in 15 or 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some said, okay, well, that means that he is, he's subservient to the Father. God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not equal. He must be subservient. And the Bible and the church has answered. The church Universal and the church historical is answered what the scriptures have taught is that there's two ways of looking at sonship. There's a way of looking at sonship ontologically. Right, Jeremy? And covenantally. Right. Ontologically is he is God's son. Fully God, fully son. But covenantally. He had to become God's son. For you and me, he had to be the perfect Adam, the perfect human, the perfect servant, and fulfill all righteousness representationally, substitutionally for you. And on that basis, God gives. And Paul can't believe it. And throughout Ephesians, he describes God's giving as he lavishes. He describes God's giving as overflowing, abundant, beyond measure, incomprehensible, beyond height and width and depth. He can't get over it. There's a good God and he gives to me, is what Paul is saying. And he gives new eyes, is what this text is saying. And what does he give you new eyes? And that moves to our second point. The first is what does receiving spiritual eyes mean? It means that God gives spiritual eyes, they're given, not taken. The second meaning is that they are given to you for a specific purpose, they're given to you to see him. That's the purpose. Look at the end of verse 17 again, that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Very quickly, there's a debate over what is that spirit. Is it the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? I think the text is making clear it's the Holy Spirit and the characteristics of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit brings wisdom. In other words, wisdom is an impartation into the real reality of things. In other words, there's a real state and a real reality and the Holy Spirit comes to that real state and that real reality and opens the door so that you can see the real reality, the real state of things, the real nature of things. And obviously the Holy Spirit's coming here and it's it's giving us spiritual wisdom, it's opening the door to give us a real understanding to see the actual contours of Him. To have a true understanding of the real state of things about Him. And then revelation is something that's also very interesting. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual revelation. What the Holy Spirit is not doing is going in and and creating these mysteries. What the Holy Spirit is doing is that there are things that are so wonderful and so mysterious and so hidden and so otherworldly That the Holy Spirit is actually unveiling them to us. That which was hidden becomes known. And so, what the Holy Spirit is doing is that the Holy Spirit is giving wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's phenomenal. That is the best pronoun in all the Bible. Him. His academic credentials were unrivaled. He was a natural leader. I mean, men followed this man everywhere. And they did whatever he asked them to do. And I think you can find the real test of what a leader he was... Because his men would do the most inhumane things to other humans at the beck of his word. He had the best education, as we mentioned, the best schools, the best teachers. He had a passion without rival. It was relentless. He went into house after house, dragging person after person away from their house. The text says, fathers and mothers, leaving crying children, fatherless, motherless, orphaned. He would single-handedly, if he had to, wipe off the face of the earth all the followers of the way, if he had to, the text says. His personal power was intoxicating One such time, there was a man named Stephen who was being stoned. And while he's being stoned, this man sat there with his approval all over it. At the end of the stoning, when the last stone hit and the last gasp of air left Stephen's lungs, the witnesses came by and took off their robes and they laid him at the feet of this man like he was a god. Intoxicating power. he was fervent he was passionate and this day started like all the others he got his covert espionage reports from the local synagogues and the high priests he found all the letters of people that followed the way and he started pursuing his fruitful leads and he started hunting down Christians in town after town and village after village Death, destruction, imprisonment, torture, all in his wake. But while he was on one road going to get his religious trophies, a light from heaven flashed all around him. And it knocked him to the ground. And then he heard a voice and saw him. And seeing him changed everything about him, even his name. And Saul became Paul. And in verse 18, Paul is giving you the theological description of what took place to him on the road to Damascus, and any believer who becomes a Christian. Let's look at it together. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and we'll get into the that's later. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The verb tense here is perfect. Bear with me and I'll give you the translation in a a minute. The verb tense is very, very important because if you don't know the verb tense, you're going to move this, to move this phrase up and down trying to find out where it's attached to. <laughs> and that's what happens with Paul. He has such long sentences and so many ifs and, and stumbles, and he makes up so many words and he goes in so many different directions that he has these hanging constructions. And, and people who are trying to figure out the meaning of the text go, Does it hang here? Does it hang here? Where does this thing hang? And you're left trying to figure out where does things go. But the tense here actually tells you where it goes. The tense is perfect. Now remember when we've talked about God being in the grammar. We've talked about the reality of verbal tenses. They're very powerful ways of the text describing the kind of action that's taking place in a passage. So if the action is being described in what's called the aorist tense. Remember what we're doing? We're up in the helicopter and we're looking down. In the aorist tense we see a parade and we see it completed, done. A summary view of all the action, completed, accomplished. But if you want to move in on the present tense in a particular verb, you're now down on the street. You're at 3rd Street and Elm when the, when the parade goes by and you catch the tuba player and then you catch the folks twirling that stuff and then you catch the drums and you catch, you know, whatever, the military, whatever starts coming through, right? When you're into the perfect tense... What you're doing is you're coming after the parade went by and you're seeing all the litter blow by in the streets. You're seeing the continual ongoing effects of something that's already happened in the present. So the perfect tells you something happened, but it's left incredible ongoing effects in its path. OK, this is in the perfect tense. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Translation is this. You become a Christian by seeing Jesus. You continue as a Christian by seeing Jesus. How you began is how you continue. Implication, if you do not see Jesus, you do not become a Christian if you do not see Jesus as a Christian, you don't grow as a Christian. That's the implication. Okay. So, seeing Jesus is what we ultimately need, isn't it? I'll be honest with you. Uh, this is the first vacation, or first as we approach vacation, out of how long we've we been here? Eight years. This is the first time. I actually said to my wife I need a vacation in eight years now now that you're all feeling for me we can have a pity party thank you Pete my compassionate brother there is a temptation for me to think that a vacation is what I need that what I need right now more than anything is a vacation And a break. And this passage just kind of parts through the misinterpretations of my world. And the misunderstandings of my world. And makes it real clear. No Jeff, what you need is you need to see Jesus. Vacations are nice. But what you need is Jesus. And I know many of us are wondering, you know, what I need I, just need, I just need some kids to obey me every once in a while. Right? No, what you need is you need to see Jesus. You know, my marriage, it's just, it's fraying at the edges. It's kind of the, uh, the unspoken word in the house. We're not doing real well right now. We need to fix something here. No, you need to see Jesus. And so does your spouse. Some of us think, well, if I have a devotional life and I get more disciplined and I get in a discipleship program and I go on a mission trip and I sign up for this and I sign up for that and I get more active and I teach a small group and I get into this thing and I get into that thing, that will fix me. No. You need to see Jesus according to this passage. All right. Let's not miss what's going on here in this passage. What's going on here? I want you to look at verses 1 through 14. And I want you to feel the pain of someone studying the original languages here. Now, you're reading 1 through 14 in your your Bible. I want you to look. Do you see all the periods there? Do you see all the sentences you have there? You know the English is so nice; it, it, it adds periods and, it, and it, it tells you complete sentences. And, and then when you go to the original text, you find out that verses one through fourteen is one long sentence, one sentence. And what's happening here is that Paul just took one long sentence to praise what he sees. He begins Ephesians by starting to talk about what he sees. His eyes of his heart has been enlightened. Past completed action, became a believer, rode to Damascus. Now, ongoing enlightenment, ongoing spiritual wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And he begins his book by telling the Ephesians, this is what I see. And he starts telling us what he sees and he goes through the whole work of the Trinity and it's one long punctuated obtuse run on sentence and he can't he can't put a period at the end of his praise it's God is this and Jesus is this and the Holy Spirit does this do you see it? that's what he's saying and he's praising, and he's prizing, and he's delighting, and he's enjoying, and he, he forgets that he's writing. And then he knows he needs to put a period, so he puts a period at the end of verse 13, 14. And Ephesians is called mini-Romans. Did you know that? Many romans Why? Because it's so full of theology. Doctrine, truth. Do you know that the first three chapters of Ephesians have not one? Oh, excuse me. There is one. One imperative. One command in the first three chapters. One. I don't know if it counts. You tell me. The command is: Remember, you were once dominated with sin. In chapter two. I don't know. They, how do I apply that? Mm. Three chapters of theology, three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of truth, completely saturated and soaked throughout the beginning of this book. And then when he gets to the end of verse 14, look at the word there. For this reason, 15, he just gets done singing praises about what he sees. And the first thing He wants to do for you is pray that you see it too. Therefore, for this reason, go down to 15, 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now I pray that God would give you a spiritual wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him. Don't miss that the implication is this do you want to see him you got to go through theology you got to go through truth you got to go through doctrine doctrine is not dry to Paul doctrine is drama doctrine is delight And you see what doctrine and truth and theology does is it shines more light on who he is. And that's why the psalmist says your word is a lamp unto my feet because in the word, the knowledge, the theology, the doctrine, the drama, the delight of God shines forth. And when that light flashed all around Paul... He looked into Jesus, and what he saw and what he continues to see is Ephesians 1 3 through 14. He's a God that planned so many things. And then you have all the Christian cuss words in there predestination, election, right? You got them all sovereign will and purpose, the scary words. And then you move into a personal purchase by the son, because he's going through the Trinity. He's got God's plan prevails over everything, is what he's saying. And then he moves in, and once he gets done painting the theology and the drama and the contours and the delight of these glorious truths, he gives you more theology, and he goes into the purchase of his son, and he says, it's redemption, and it's adoption, and those are theological words. And those theological words just radiate light because it says that actually redemption is a is a rescue, a divine rescue where a hero comes in and he rescues you from sin and he rescues you by the power of blood. That's incredible drama. Incredible dogma. And then don't get that miss that word adoption that's in there because adoption has to do with he makes you his own. He makes you his own child. He says, you're mine. You were an orphan, and now you're a son. And I give you all the privileges and all the benefits, all the spiritual riches and treasures that are of a son are now yours, and of a daughter are now yours. I adopt you, it says. Then you move to the Holy Spirit, and what you get from the Holy Spirit is you get all these things being pushed into your life powerfully. You get more theology. The word there is called Sealing. The Holy Spirit actually applies now the Father's plan, the Son's purchase to you. That's why it's spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see Him. All right. I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. It's what my notes say, so I, I better strike here. Theology is how you see Him. This is what I wanted to say by way of practical, real practical application. This fall, this upcoming year, we're, we're, we've been doing what's called the Redeemer Institute. And on Wednesday nights, we went through this past year, the story or the drama of the Old Testament. This year having had the soil of the scriptures laid out before us, we're now going to harvest all the treasures in that story into the themes that God gives to us called systematic theology. And so we'll look at things like covenant and we'll look at things like who is this God and what did the Son do? All these theological words... And again, for us, it's not just rational understanding. It's actually drama. Because it means more light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ shines into your heart when you see it. Okay? And so that's what we're going to do on Wednesday nights, so and I want to invite you to do that. And through the encouragement of others this past weekend, I think what we'll do, we'll do the institute where we'll systematize theology in the fall, and then in the spring... We're going to apply that theology. We're going to look at how does your life change? How do you become an instrument in the Redeemer's hands? How, how does God use a person with the gospel? How does the gospel and theology internalize itself in your life? And what does it look like? So, systematic, practical, in between, I'm contemplating and thinking of doing a mini marriage conference. Now, that's weird. Because I want us to see... That theology is everything it's everything in your marriage it's everything in your parenting it's everything in your job it's everything about you we are all theologians the issue is whether we're a good one or a bad one that's the only issue okay all right when you get stuck in an apparent you know I broke my watch so that's my excuse I broke it cutting my dad's yard this weekend. So I'm a little long. All right, when you get stuck in an apparent changeless state, how do you hope for real change? Specifically, how do you do it? If you're stuck in an apparent changeless state, you know you're spiritually stuck in the mud. And maybe a faithful friend comes along and shows you. Maybe it's a certain situation that gets your attention. Maybe it's financial difficulty. Your job, your marriage, there's something that gets your attention that starts waking you up to the fact that you're in a changeless spiritual state. You're stuck in the mud spiritually. How do you hope for change? Quickly, here are some things that you can do. Number one, stop what you're doing and admit your spiritual blindness. Just stop wherever you are. We have a tendency to keep going. In other words, you know you're stuck in the spiritual mud. I know I'm stuck in the spiritual mud, so what do we do? What's on the ball game tonight? Go Mavericks. Ooh, they lost. What's on? And we we don't stop. First thing we need to do is stop. Stop what we're doing and admit our spiritual blindness. In other words, admit our tremendous need to see him and admit your inability to see him without him giving him to you. So first you admit and then you pray, you ask, you ask God, just like just like. Paul's asking, just like the first thing he does after he gives you all this theology, he prays that you see it too. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart. Ask God to give you spiritual wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. And then you trust. You trust that God is at work with power in your life to do that. I do not have time, but the rest of this passage, what it ends up doing is it ends up taking what the content of the prayer is, and it tells you there are three things that... He wants you to see. When you see him, you'll see three things. If you look quickly in verse 18, that you may know the hope that you've been called. That's the first thing. The second thing, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Uh, That's the second thing. Go down to the third thing. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? What's very interesting in these three things, the first thing has a past orientation. The second thing has a future orientation. The third thing... As a present orientation. And what's the present orientation? That you know His power is at work in you right now to do this. And then He gives three evidences for it. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that submitted all things under His feet. And that means you. And that means your cold heart. That means everything. And the same power that made Him head or ruler king over the church. That power is at work right now for His glory in your life. And so you trust that. And then you act in faith, which means you now pick up His ordained means of power. If He is the head of the church, that means He's now ruling. He rules over His word. And so that means that powerfully right now, he is enabling his word to be the power of God at work in you, to change you, to open your eyes. So read it, and read it quickly, read it generally, read it thoughtfully, read the theology of it, okay? Also, his church, it's no accident that he says the evidence of one of his powers is that he is reigning, ruling over the church. And so that is one of the major ways that he changes your life. One of the major ways that his power is unleashed in your life. And we can go on and on about specific things, but we're going to stop there. All right, the hope for real change is receiving spiritual eyes. This means spiritual eyes are given, not taken. This means spiritual eyes are given to see him. Okay? Now, Curtis Thomas tells the story of a pastor who was firmly committed to a position. His position was this he was committed that when you began by grace, you could fall away, though, from grace. In other words, God could do a gracious work in your life, you could have a, an enlightenment, completed action, spiritual eyes, see Jesus, get the six senses, what the old language is talked about the sixth sense, the spiritual perception, the spiritual ability to see Jesus eyes of faith. So to speak, you can have it and then lose it. You can have it and then fall away. That was this man's position. This is a true story. And so he wanted to seal it with his congregation. he wanted to teach in a series of it to make sure and motivate them for holiness because if they realize they can fall away, it'll motivate them to be holy it doesn't motivate me, but it motivates some, okay? So he began his sermon series defending in his position in the middle of one of his sermons while he was preaching through John 10, right in the middle of his sermon. His eyes were open to the truth of grace in that passage. And he realized he was wrong. and in John 10 he realized that it is The Savior's grace from beginning, middle, and end. And that this grace prevails. And this grace perseveres. And this grace works powerfully. Past, present, future. And you know what he did? In the middle of his sermon, he stopped. And he said, brothers and sisters, I was wrong. And the Lord just opened my eyes to see the truth and the grace of His beauty in this passage. And He went on proclaiming and preaching and praising what He saw. God gives spiritual eyes and He gives spiritual eyes freely. He gives spiritual eyes graciously. He gives spiritual eyes powerfully because He wants you to see the glory of His Son. Ask Him for it. And believe that He's at work to do it. And then go where He promises to do it. In His Word. With His people. And the whole life of the church. Amen.